Thanks be to God. Very glad to see each one of you uh, this morning. My name is Gray, uh, the pastor here, and if this is your first time here, we want to welcome you again, and please uh, excuse our mess and dust in here. Uh, so just a brief uh, update, we're, we're updating the sanctuary. Uh, there's a long story of God's provision for us in giving us this building a couple of years ago, uh, and so we're trying to be faithful to that and steward it well. We've started uh, projects in here, so you'll notice we ripped out some stuff in the back of the stage. Um, this week, actually, we took the fans out, so these lights that are hanging down are new lights in here. Uh, these other lights that are on the side have been disconnected, and I'm told they're going to be ripped out tomorrow. So um, it'll, be, it'll look a little different every week. We're still working on lighting, how to get lighting up here and maybe a little brighter in here. So the next couple of weeks, we might have uh, kind of a dim feel in here. But anything's better than that fluorescent shine from the side. Can I get an amen? Um, all right. So it's getting better week by week. Uh, so sorry for the extra dust and the visuals, uh, but this is an exciting time for us. And um, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word, Psalm 123. And as we do that, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord first in prayer. Father, your Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. As we come this morning and hear from what you have given to us, your self-revelation, your giving of yourself to us in the Word printed and also in the Word sent in your Son, Jesus Christ, who we will take of this morning at the table, we are aware that we are blessed. You have shown yourself to us. You have given us a light to you. And I pray that we would be humble and excited even to see what it is that you would show us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So last week I watched a hard but good movie, Emancipation. Uh, Will Smith starring in this movie. Um, it's a very hard movie to watch. It's a very good movie. It's in black and white. It tells a story, a true story. Uh, from the 1860s, where this, this black man who is a slave escapes, and it's the true story. They call him Peter in, in the movie. That's, that's his name in the movie, but his whole story is, is based off of a picture that was taken in 1863, one of the first photos we have um, of, of that era in the black plight, and, um, and it was published in uh, Harper's Weekly Magazine. This picture became known as the scourged back. So it's a picture of him looking sideways from the camera, his back turned to the camera, and there are scourges on his back. And this was one of the pictures that became part of, um, of, of the movement of emancipation in the United States. And um, it's, this, it's this story that Will Smith plays very well of his escape from a sl being a slave and his eventual emancipation to ba in Baton Rouge. So he has a five-day journey after he escapes from his camp. And I won't spoil how the movie ends. But he has basically this very specific hope. When he leaves, he, he sets his eyes towards Baton Rouge. Why Baton Rouge? This is the place 
of his hope. It's going to be a journey of hope where he believes that he is going to be freed. He has heard, overheard in the camp that the Union armies, Grant's armies are now in Baton Rouge, and, and so there he can be received and will be freed. And so he sets his hope and his eyes towards this specific hope. And that's kind of the story, but the story underneath the story is his journey of faith as well, because this is a man of faith. Peter loves the Lord. Despite his condition, he has this deep and abiding faith. The movie begins with him praying over his wife when he's about to be taken away. And throughout, we see his unstoppable, unshakable faith in the Lord. And he has plenty of opposition to that faith. He has opposition from the outside and opposition from the inside. There is opposition from the outside, the slave owners and soldiers who beat him and who quote Bible verses to him out of context. There's opposition, obviously, about being just a slave in that time period. But there's also opposition to his faith from inside. There's a scene in the movie where He's trusting in the Lord. He's trying to comfort another slave. But then one of the slaves who has just been beaten says, why are you saying these things about God? Where is God? He's not here. But Peter, just like his hope is fixed on Baton Rouge and his eyes are fixed, his eyes are also fixed on the Lord, his God. And there's a beautiful theme throughout the movie as he escapes and runs towards his freedom. There's a theme of kind of the music of the cannons. He tells the other slaves, follow the cannons to get to Baton Rouge. Hear Grant's guns. And when you follow that sound, that sound almost becomes a song. And there's these beautiful scenes in the movie where he hears the distant cannons and the birds fluttering and he he remembers his hope. And he looks towards the place where the sound came from. He hears the song, and he turns his eyes towards hope. That's what we're meant to do with Psalm 123. We're supposed to hear the song, hear the beauty of what it invites us into, and turn our eyes to fix them on the hope of what God is going to do. This song actually has a traditional name. Some psalms have names that they've gotten historically, which I think is kind of cool. Psalm 123 uh, has been called the oculus sperens. That's the Latin name, which just means the eye of hope. The eye of hope. It's a prayer to look up in the midst of opposition, of hardship, whether the opposition is coming from the inside or from the outside, to look in hope to what is your future hope, and it's in the Lord your God. It's easy when we're in the midst of hardship and opposition to focus our eyes on that opposition, on that hardship. That's what we naturally tend to do, and that's understandable. And most of us have not experienced anything near the amount of opposition that Peter, who I mentioned this this morning, did in his story. But we do have things that keep our heads down. We do have things that keep us focused on the opposition or the hardship rather than looking at the Lord our God who is doing something in and through that hardship. And so we need to return to Psalm 123, and this is what we need to see. This song fixes our 
eyes back on this unshakable hope. In time, we will see God respond with mercy. In time, we will see God respond with mercy. Now, we don't control the time. That's what we're going to talk about. It's in God's timing. But there's an unshakable belief and hope that we see here, that we see in the life of Peter, that story told, that, that slave who was escaping. He believed that there would be this mercy in the future. And that's the kind of hope that we need to have to fix our eyes We don't control the timing, but in God's timing, we will receive mercy, the confidence of hope in fixing our eyes on Him. What does it mean to fix our eyes on God? I want to talk about three things that we can fix our eyes on that will give us hope. The first one is His Lordship, God's Lordship. This is what we fix our eyes on. This is where Psalm 123 begins In verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now you'll notice a similar way that this psalm begins as the one that was two before it. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's Psalm 121. We talked about how he lifted up his eyes and perhaps he saw in the mountains the dangers around Jerusalem, but maybe he was looking past those mountains to Mount Zion, his hope, this tallest mountain around where the temple was. And he fixed his eyes on that. But here, he doesn't stop at even the temple. He goes straight towards the great mystery of all, the heavens. He's lost in the heavens. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. This place in the sky is a place of mystery and depth and the size and the picture of the greatness and grandeur of God. And God not only sits in heaven, we're told here, He is enthroned in heaven. Enthroned in heaven. All the heavens, in other words, this is a common biblical picture, are His royal court. We often see this, like the stars surrounding the heavens become this picture of the angels who surround God, and He sits enthroned in the midst of it all. He is Lord. His throne is fixed. And it's a good reminder because we've been talking about how these psalms of ascent are psalms of journey for us, us moving towards the heavenly city, us moving through the Christian life, ascending to a life with God, and to know that we are on a journey is important for us, but it's also important to know that God is not on a journey. His point is fixed. His place is enthroned in the heavens. He's not moving at all. He is above all. And we need that. How does that help when, when we're going through something hard and we need the help of God and we were waiting for His mercy? There's a reminder here that God is a fixed point. He is not movable. He is not surprised by things. He is not overcome by things. He sits in a place where He sees all. He has a lordship over all. He is not overcome by hardship He acknowledges hardship. He weeps with His people. There is an intimacy with God, but He doesn't leave the throne. Even in the midst of whatever it is that we are experiencing that is hard. 
He is the unmovable reality. And so we are not left trying to figure out what is true north. What is the right one to serve? We have it. There is a God, and He sits in the heavens enthroned. And even if we don't understand what He is doing, there is that comfort, that fact to know that He is on the throne. Something we believe. Sometimes we have to fix our eyes on even though we don't see the evidence for it. Eugene Peterson, great pastor and scholar, says this, if God is God at all, He must know more about our needs than we do. If God is God at all, He must be more in touch with the reality of our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies than we are. If God is God at all, He must have a more comprehensive grasp of the interrelations of our families and communities and nations than we do. I mean, this is basic, but it's just so powerful to go back to this basic. When you're experiencing something hard and you're having a hard time knowing how to focus your hope, remember that God is God for a reason. If He's God at all, then it would make sense that He sees something that we don't see, that from His vantage point, He can do something that we can't do. And so when we fix our eyes on His Lordship and we say, despite the circumstances, I'm going to look here, I'm going to follow this song and point my eyes towards its hope. There's a comfort that comes from knowing He's enthroned, His Lordship. Secondly, we fix our eyes on His timing, on His timing. There's an image here in verse 2. Let me read it for us and I'll explain it. Behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. There's a picture here of a servant or a maidservant looking to the hand of their master or mistress. And uh, what's going on with that? You know, in our culture, we rely heavily on the spoken word. We speak to each other. We use different tones. We use different, um, you know, intention behind our voice. And we give shades of meaning vocally. That's something that we do. Um, in this culture, much more an emphasis on gesture, less an emphasis on the spoken word. And so the picture here is of a, a, a servant of the house who knows the master so well that he's watching the hand gestures of the master or the mistress and he's seeing what is communicated. Are we done with the meal or uh, what needs to happen next? And it may seem like that is uh, more of a, I don't know, a condescending way uh, to communicate, but that's, that's through our Western eyes. Actually, it's very subtle because what the master is able to do is not command things specifically with, with words, but the, the servant, the point here is the servant desires to do what the master wants him or her to do. The servant can say, how can I be ready? How can I wait upon the master? There's really two things we need to see with this picture about our fixing our eyes on the hope that God gives us. The first one is that faith is waiting. And the second one is that waiting is rewarded. They're both here in this picture. Faith is waiting. This picture that we're given about the servant, the mistress, the master and the mistress, he says, so, at the end of verse 2, our eyes look to the Lord our God. 
In other words, we don't know when he will move his hand. We don't know when he will show us what to do. And this is the essence of faith. Faith is waiting. If faith wasn't waiting, if faith was just knowing, it wouldn't be faith, right? There's a reason why, if God is God at all, we just read, right? There's a reason why He is God and we are not. It's that we don't know necessarily when or why He's doing the things that He's doing. And I want you to just think about waiting in Scripture for just a moment. The Scripture is full of waiting. I mean, it's a story of waiting. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. That's longer than America has been a nation. Think about that for a moment. The promises that God was going to be to, to Abraham, a God, to his seed after him, that promise, that strong promise that drives the narrative, reaches a 400-year waiting period. And even after they leave Egypt, they wander for 40 years in the wilderness before they arrive at the promised land. This is the theme. I was thinking this week about uh, Simeon, this uh, minor New Testament character in the book of Luke. Jesus is born. That We have the nativity story. And then Jesus is presented at the temple. So this baby comes to the temple. And there's a man there, we're told in Luke chapter 2, whose name is Simeon. And here's how Simeon is described. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. His whole life, whatever that was, 60, 70, 80 years, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. God had placed on his heart a desire for the Messiah. And he waits his whole life. And then he prays this beautiful prayer when he finally sees Jesus. It's become known as the Nunc Dimittis, this prayer that we pray around Christmas. Now let your servant depart in peace. Listen, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In the midst of his waiting, he fixed his eyes, and now he had a point on which to fix it. It was Jesus Christ, this child, the consolation of Israel. That was his song, the Nunc Dimittis, the song that directed his eyes back to the hope that God had given him for the consolation of Israel. This is what faith is. It's, it's hearing the song of Scripture and then placing our faith in that hope. Think about it this way. For 33 years only on this earth, has the world known what it was waiting for? And even then, most didn't recognize it. What am I talking about? Jesus Christ, his 33 years where he lived and died and then was raised from the dead, all the time before that was us waiting for the Messiah. And all the time after that is waiting for his return. Faith is waiting. And so if you would be a person of faith, you would be a person of hope. Maybe you're wondering about that. You, you don't know if you are. What you're, I want to be honest about what you're being invited into. It's a waiting game. Faith is waiting. But I invite you into it because as you see who Jesus is in the, in the Scriptures, that He is the consolation of Israel, that there is a reason for hope, and you fix your eyes on that salvation, then God gives you the eyes of faith. He enables you to see what you need to see to have hope in Him. And it's not 
a useless hope. Faith is waiting, but waiting is rewarded. You see that in Psalm 123? So our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. Don't you love that confidence? We're going to look to God until He has mercy. There is a definite feeling that God will have mercy. In His timing, He will bring His mercy. In other words, what he's saying is we can't know the mind of God and we can't know the timing of God, but we can be certain of His character. He will be merciful. That's who God is. And so seeing God give us the the hope that we have, the, the object of our hope, seeing that, seeing humanity completely restored, seeing whatever it is that we desire that He's placed in us that's a good desire come to fruition, all of those things are only a matter of time. And I mean that literally. Because God is a God of mercy. That is His character. The Scriptures are clear. He both intends and accomplishes His good work in His time. He does and will and can restore His people. He's not wondering about it. He has a plan. Not partially, completely. He will defeat sin and death fully and finally. He will make everything new. And this is not a matter of His character. It's not a matter of His desire. Nor is it a matter of His ability. It's a matter of His time. Until He has mercy. That's what we're waiting for. We need to recognize time is hard for us. To wait and to see all the hardship and to experience the things that we experience. But we're called here, despite those feelings, to fix our eyes on hope to the God who is in charge of the timing. His Lordship and His timing. Third and finally, His goodness. There's a challenge to the goodness of God in verse 3 and 4 that very much goes hand in hand with hardship. Verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. In the midst of fixing our eyes on God's lordship and his timing, there will be a counter-narrative that basically says, fixing your eyes on the Lord is ridiculous. It shows up as contempt. We've had more than enough of contempt. The word just means this, to treat as of no consequence. Contempt is you're wasting your time and energy on this faith. It shows up as scorn. Of those who scorn, of the scorn of those who are at ease. Scorn is mockery. It's the laughter of those who scoff at the goodness of God. And so they say, not only is being a Christian a waste of time, that's contempt, it's also ridiculous, that's scorn. And then third, there's arrogance. Of the contempt 
of the proud, literally those who are high up, those who are lofty, those who look down on the faith. There is a thread here through this that serving God is a waste. God is not as good as you think He is. It's quite possible that this psalm was written uh, first before it made it into the 150 psalms and then in a smaller book of the Psalms of Ascent that we have here before that it was quite possibly written during the time of Nehemiah when the people of God returned from exile in Babylon and they had to come back to their home and rebuild it. And they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild this life with God. And he's telling them, this is what you do. Rebuild the walls. Nehemiah was a leader to do that. And during that time when they were rebuilding it, there was a chorus of naysayers. Unknown names in the Bible, but significant characters who are the opposition of Israel. A guy named Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat said this, He was an enemy of the people of God in Nehemiah. And he says this, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves, this this great wall? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Hey, maybe they'll be out of here soon. Do you see the contempt, the scorn, the arrogance? Tobiah says, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on a hill, he will break down their stone wall. All it takes is one single animal to go up and knock down all this effort Israel was called in the midst of that contempt and scorn and hatred and pride to still be obedient to what God had called them to do, even in a chorus of naysayers who said, your project of faith is ridiculous. Do we know that feeling? Can we acknowledge That it's a discouraging time to be a Christian. In America, at least, as elsewhere. It's in a time where we need feel the need to hide our convictions, to cover over our embarrassments, to explain away our faith. There is plenty of scorn and contempt and arrogance in the public sphere directed at us. What does faithfulness look like when the project of faith is held in contempt? When it's discouraging and when other voices are saying, give up on this endeavor. What was Peter, the slave, called to do? When the voices said, there's ample evidence here that this is your lot. He said, as the psalm says here, enough. I'm full of this. I'm so full, I don't need this anymore. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough. I'm just full of this. Enough. I'm not listening to that, in other words. I'm not giving myself, I'm not giving into that narrative, to that song. I have a different song. And my song is that my eyes are fixed on the Lord my God who sits enthroned in the heavens. 
Not on the sounds and the sirens and the manipulations of others who come along this pathway to get me off of it. I was thinking this week, a friend reminded me about this story in, in, in Greek mythology, the story of the sirens. I mean, there's, there's lots of stories of the sirens and their songs. These were creatures uh, who, you know, sang beautifully and, and they, they would draw sailors who were sailing by off course and they would bring the sailors to themselves and they would eat them. I mean, they would destroy them. This was what the sirens did. And there's several stories about the siren songs. One of the most famous is Odysseus who uh, you know, takes this crew with him and he gives them beeswax for their ears. And he says, put this in your ears, but I want to hear the siren song. And so he has the, the crew tie him, lash him to the masts so that he is tied up to that um, but he can hear the song, but he, does, he will not respond and be destroyed. That's one story. But there's a slightly lesser known story about the sirens. Jason and the Argonauts are, are sailing the seas and they have with them the hero Orpheus. And Orpheus is this great godlike musician. And instead of using the beeswax to tune out the siren's song, what they did to defeat the sirens was they had Orpheus play the most beautiful music that he could. And so, when the sailors heard Orpheus' song, they looked at him and not to the sirens, and they were not drawn away and destroyed. They defeated the song of the sirens with a better music. This is what we're called to. How do we not get drawn away by the contempt and the scorn and the arrogance of those who would say, stop fixing your hope on the Lord your God. That is ridiculous. We realize that we're following a different song. When we hear the scriptures and this psalm to us, by the faith that God has given us, we hear the song and we turn to the Lord our God. We don't turn sideways and we don't turn towards our hardship and try to see, how can I get through this? We have a better song. We say, enough of this contempt. It's not attractive to me anymore what everybody else is saying because I'm fixing my eyes on this God who is enthroned in heaven. And so I want to encourage us to take whatever hardship it is that we're experiencing, whatever it is that's hard right now that distracts us from having an eye of hope. And when we look at that, we, we start to think, well, what is it that I'm trying to do in getting through this hardship? Maybe perhaps through this, I'm, I'm starting to believe that God is not able to do what he wants to do. I've taken God off of the throne. Maybe I've started to believe that my timing is better than his timing. And if I were in his throne, then I would know when and where and what to do. Maybe we've started to believe and, and hear, maybe this is not good anymore. Maybe God is not as good as I thought he was because of my circumstance. And here, the song of faith, you can see it with the eyes of faith. God is good and he sits on his throne and he is worthy of our eyes being focused on him and him alone. And we say enough of these other narratives 
and look up to him until he has mercy. In his timing, it is certain that he will have mercy on us. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows his desires and purposes. And what we're trusting in is not our understanding of his timing, but in his character of mercy. And he has shown that over and over again, most purely and believably in his son, Jesus Christ, who was the consolation of Israel, who was the thing that the world was waiting on for centuries, millennia, And in God's timing, mercy came. And he continues to that story in our lives right now and with the whole story from creation to consolation in the end, the consummation of all things. That is his story. We wait and hope. We look at him and he will have mercy. Let's pray. Father, we know that you need to give us eyes that are fixed on you, that we are not able to fix them ourselves and to not be distracted by either hardship or by the contempt of others. So we ask that you would work in and through us, give us new hearts, new desires, new faith that whatever it is that we're experiencing right now is a place where you are inviting us to look to you. Not to understanding our circumstance, not to solving it, but we would look in faith to you, believing that in your time, you will give us your mercy. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.